Revelation chapter 11. We're just going to continue right on. We, we got through the first three verses last week, uh, kind of. And we're in this section that talks about the two witnesses. And um, you really, if you missed it, you're going to have to go back and, and check a lot of stuff because we don't have time to catch everybody up on everything. But, but the short summary is uh, the two witnesses, they are, are coming and they are going to uh, minister for 42 months, which we said... Uh, harkens back to the book of Daniel, and it really, it's symbolic for the entire time period between Jesus' ascension and his return. And when we were talking about the two witnesses, we were saying that there's a few different interpretations, and something that we need to reiterate this week, uh, that I said last week, you're free to hold to a different interpretation uh, than I hold to. That's fine, because this is not a primary issue, right church? When there's no reason to be up in arms and start throwing fists over eschatology. There's plenty of other things to fight about. So uh, the end times is not one of them. There are more important issues. So you can hold to a different view. That's fine. As uh, long as we agree on Jesus, that's all that matters. But the most common view today, if you'll remember, we said the most common view today says that the two witnesses are going to come at some point in the future. And they refer to two literal people. Now, there were different uh, suggestions. Some people say Elijah and Moses. Some people say Elijah and Enoch. And if you'll remember, the view that I put forward is to say that it's actually not referring to two individual people who are going to come at some point in the future, but that the two witnesses refers to the church as a whole, and that it's referring to the ministry of the church during the time between Jesus' ascension and his return. And the big question was, well, uh, why why are they referred to as two witnesses then? If this refers to the whole church, then why does it say two? And the reason is because it's referring back to the Old Testament, where the Old Testament said in order for a testimony to be believable and trustworthy, it had to be established by how many witnesses? Two. And so this is just Revelation's way of saying the testimony of the church regarding Jesus and the gospel is a reliable, trustworthy witness. It is a reliable testimony that should be believed. That's that's what the point is here. And we listed a bunch of other reasons for believing that it's it's not referring to two literal people. Uh, Another primary reason was that they're referred to as the two lampstands. And we said all throughout Scripture, in every single place, the word lampstand is used. And I looked at every single one that occurs in Scripture it always refers to either a literal lampstand or the church and nothing else. There's no in-between. It never once refers to an individual person or anything like that. It always refers to a literal lampstand or the church. And even earlier in the book of Revelation in chapter 1, Jesus said that the lampstands are the churches. The churches are the lampstands. The lampstands are the churches. Since we're still in the same book, inspired by the same God, written with human hands by the same author, we should defer to that interpretation, that the lampstands refer to the church. And so there were like five other reasons, but you'll have to go back and listen to that lesson on our website. So here's something I want to do now, all right? We're looking at the two witnesses, and I've just put before you a view that probably a lot of people haven't heard of before. And here's what I know happens, human tendency Whenever we're confronted with a view that's different from our own or a view that we're not familiar with, we have a tendency to be pretty skeptical, right? 
Say, oh, I haven't heard it that way before. That's not the way I've always been told. I, I've always believed something different. And listen, again, that's fine. But what I want you to understand is that this is not a new interpretation. Uh, and just because an interpretation is new to you, uh, or no longer the common view, does not mean that it's new to the church. In fact, this might surprise you. This view that the two witnesses refers to the entirety of God's people who will be a witness for the Lord throughout the entire church age, it was the very first view of the church. It was the very first understanding of this passage from the church, and it was the majority of view for centuries and centuries and centuries in the church. You have to remember, Revelation was written in the 90s. Uh, This is the 90s AD. That's when Revelation was written. I'm going to show you some examples of early testimonies we have concerning the book of Revelation, specifically on this topic. Arguably the most important one, Irenaeus. He was the bishop of Lyon, and he was ministering in the 100s AD, so this is very, very early 2nd century. And again, Revelation was written in the 90s. In the 100s AD, Irenaeus, bishop of Lyon, he actually wrote concerning the two witnesses in Revelation. He wrote about this in a book, a famous book, great read. It's called Against Heresies. If you ever want to read it, it's free online, public domain. But he wrote, this was just years, years after Revelation was written by John through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And Irenaeus said this about the two witnesses. He said, the two witnesses are God's covenant people encompassing both covenants and that their ministry is the church's witness until the time of Christ's return. Now, isn't that interesting? This is the earliest extra-biblical work about the book of Revelation that we have. And this is the, the earliest person we have commenting on the book of Revelation. And his view was not, it's referring to two literal people who are coming back. This was a man who was living shortly after the Apostle John, who was friends with the Apostle John's disciples. And he says it was referring to the church and their ministry. But not only that, uh, you can go into, uh, again, early 2nd century and beginning into the 3rd century. But 2nd century, you have a man named Tertullian. And Tertullian uh, had this majority view as well, that the two witnesses were God's people who bear witness to Christ and the gospel until the return of Christ. Now, this also continued into the third century with a man named Origen. You might have heard of him before. Yeah, he was very famous. They said that he was the most brilliant uh, uh, biblical scholar that the early church ever produced. And in the 200s AD, so this is early third century, a little over 100 years after Revelation was written, uh, Origen, like Irenaeus and Tertullian, interpreted the two witnesses as the church, and he said that their prophesying was the ongoing witness of the church that continues until Christ's return. You have the same thing with Cyprian, the bishop of Carthage in 200s AD, except he added this little clarification, um, this little unique contribution of his to stress the importance of the unity of believers uh, in fulfilling the witness that they're supposed to carry out on the behalf of Christ through this age. Another church father in the 3rd century, you can see up there, Victorinus of Patal. He was the bishop of Poetobia. 
uh, Poetovio, never even heard of that place, but that's where he was, and he was the bishop there. And he also held to this view with the added clarification that the death and resurrection of the two witnesses, the church, represents the persecution and the eventual vindication of God's faithful people. Uh, This clearly shows that this view was the majority view held by the early church, at least through the first three centuries of the church. You get into the fourth century of Ambrose of Milan, he also held to this view. And and honestly, we could just keep going on, on and on through Augustine and others and things like that. The point of this is that even though this view might be unfamiliar to you, it is not unfamiliar to the church. And I think that's something we have to keep in mind because we have this tendency in the church today to find a lot of comfort in what we've always been told and the way that we've always been told it and we hold on to that. And then when you actually start looking back through church history and say, well, how did the, the early church interpret this? How did the people who were closest in time to Jesus and his apostles and, and even their disciples, how did they understand this passage? Because Irenaeus, he was very close friends with Polycarp. Polycarp was a disciple of John, uh, and he was associated with John. Uh, many people tried to actually include Polycarp's writing in the Bibles, but, in, but the Bible, they said, this is not actually inspired. But they were the ones who were learning from John, who wrote the book of Revelation under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So they had a little more insight than we do today. We're very far removed. They were right there. So all this is to say it, that the majority view today was not the majority view of the early church. And uh, with this view that, that you have two literal people who were coming back at some point in time, it rose into popularity a little later, but something else we need to address with this. If you're looking at Revelation chapter 11, and it's talking about the two witnesses, the, the, the common view today, remember, it says that these, it's referring to two literal people who will come back at some point in time, and they'll say, you know, Elijah and Moses, or Elijah and Enoch. Elijah and Enoch are usually the two uh, biggest suggestions, and we run into an interesting problem. You see, the reason that people suggest Elijah and Enoch, we said this last week, do you remember the reason? Why do they say it has to be Elijah and Enoch? They never died. So you run into what I call the 927 problem, all right? Specifically Hebrews 927. Mazan, could you put that on the screen? Here's this very interesting problem. The Bible says in Hebrews 927, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. So the people who hold to this view, they say, well, it has to be Elijah and Enoch because the Bible says man must die once. Elijah and Enoch did not die. Therefore, they have to return in order to fulfill what God is saying they will do here and have you know, the, the ability to die since the Lord took them before their deaths. And at first glance, that seems like a serious problem to this other view, right? Like... <laughs> I mean, you look at this, the Bible says you've got to die once, they never died. It makes a lot of sense that they need to come back and die, right? Seems like a very serious problem at first, but it's only a problem if you interpret Hebrews 9.27 very rigidly, and I think that we have good reason not to interpret it rigidly. So interpret it truthfully, but not rigidly. And here's why I say that, because the verse clearly says there, It's been appointed for man to die once. Yes, we all see it. We all agree. Here's the problem. 
many people throughout history have died more than once. Right? I mean, there are plenty of examples. For instance, uh, the widow's son in 1 Kings 17 died, but then Elijah brought him back to life. Uh, The same thing applies for the widow's son in 2 Kings 4, whom Elisha brought back to life. Jairus' daughter in Mark chapter 5, whom Jesus brought back to life. Widow's uh, son in Luke 7, Jesus brought him back to life. Lazarus, y'all remember Lazarus? Jesus brought him back to life after he died. Uh, Dorcas died, and then Peter brought Dorcas back to life. And then there's the funniest one, which is Eutychus. Y'all remember Eutychus? Don't tell me you forgot about Eutychus. He's the one who fell out of the window. Paul preached such a boring sermon, the guy fell out of a window and died. How do y'all forget that? If someone died during one of my sermons, I wouldn't forget it. He fell out of a window, and he died. And then Paul goes down, he's like, I wasn't done preaching. He brings him, brings him back to life. I mean, can you imagine you die out of falling out of a window, and Paul says, you, you're not done listening. But all these people, here's the point, all of these people, They died once, and then through the power of God working through some human, they were brought back to life. But here's the thing. They eventually died again, right? So they didn't die just once. It's been appointed for man to die once. If we're going to interpret that literally and rigidly, it means man must only die once. However, if we're not so rigid with it, then you don't have to believe that. The second reason I don't think that we should interpret it rigidly is because not everyone is going to die. Right? I mean, we we got to be very careful with this. If we say that this is rigid and literal and it must be the case, well, the problem is it's not going to be the case because there are many, many people who will never die. For instance, if we are so fortunate, we might be alive when Jesus returns. If Jesus returns before we die, will we ever die? No. We'll be escorted to heaven. We will go to the judgment throne of God. And then we'll be with him forever and ever and ever. And we will never be touched by death. So there are some people who will never die. So so when you look at this, this is why I always tell people, Scripture interprets Scripture. You read this and you go, okay, it might be literal, it might be rigid, maybe only everybody only dies once, but then you look at the Bible and the whole testimony of Scripture says, well, many people have died more than once, and many people will never die. That does not, I want you to understand something, that does not take away from the truthfulness of what this verse says. Do you all follow me on this? This verse is true, It is just not rigid. This is not meant to be rigid. It's meant to be a general principle. The Bible is saying here in Hebrews 9.27 that generally speaking, death comes for all. For some, it comes multiple times. I mean, you've heard the stories even today of people dying and then being brought back to life through our modern technologies. I mean, praise God for that. And you know that when Jesus returns, the people who are alive will never die. This is saying generally speaking, It has been appointed that death is mankind's end, and after that comes the judgment of God. So, in other words, when you understand it like that, and understand that it's a general thing, we don't need to interpret this rigidly, and because of that, it's not an actual problem for the view that the two witnesses are the church. Nor does this verse suggest that Enoch and Elijah have to come back, because they do not. If you, the only way you get there is if that's rigid. But since that's rigid, not rigid, then Enoch and Elijah do not have to come back. Generally speaking, all people will die 
and that will be their end. And so with that all said, trying to move past the two witnesses and their identities, we can get into their ministry very quickly. I want you to look at Revelation 11, verses 4 through 6. This is going to describe the ministry of the two witnesses. So the Bible says these are the two olive trees, meaning, again, a reference back to Zechariah. They're the ones anointed by God to carry out his ministry here. They're the two lampstands. It's referring to the church. And they stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Now, it's important to note here that there's a lot of symbolic language being used, and I want you to notice how it revolves around our mouths and our speech. Right? Did, you, did you notice this? Fire comes from the mouth, and, and then the witnesses use their mouths to prophesy and to call down certain judgments from God. And so what this does is this actually representing the church preaching a message of judgment upon a people who refuse to repent of their sins and turn to Christ. In other words, we don't need to interpret this literally as fire literally coming from their mouth. Um, that's not what's being pictured here. You could picture that, and uh, you know what? The Lord could make it happen, but I don't think it's necessary here. This is not saying that fire is literally going to come from their mouth. It's a reference to the judgment, because fire is associated with God's judgment. And so it means that the message of salvation in Christ, if rejected, becomes a message of judgment upon those who reject it and anticipates the the final judgment. And, And here's the thing. Fire has already been used in the Bible in this exact way. All right, so the reference, Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 14. This is what the Bible says. Jeremiah 5, 14. I want you to notice the similarities here. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, because you have spoken this word, behold, I am making my words in your mouth a fire. And this people would, and the fire shall consume them. Was God saying that the words in Jeremiah's mouth were literally going to become fire? Or that he was literally going to turn people to wood, and then the words that Jeremiah spoke, being fire, would literally burn them up? No. It's a picture of judgment. God was saying, I've given you a message to proclaim, and they have refused to repent. They have refused to turn from their evil, sinful ways. They've refused to turn to me. And so now you're going to preach a message of judgment. And that judgment is going to be so severe and so fast coming upon them that it will be like a fire-consuming wood. Your words will burn them up like a fire consumes wood. That, that's the idea here. That, that's what John is communicating to us in the book of Revelation. He's saying the message of Christ is salvation to all who would repent and believe. But notice, it's also a message of judgment to those who reject the gospel and refuse to repent and believe. I mean, the, the book of Revelation uses this imagery all the time, right? I mean, do you remember what Jesus has coming out of his mouth? A sword. Are we supposed to, to believe that when Jesus comes back, there will be a literal sword coming out of his mouth? The sword is a picture of God's word, which we read about in Hebrews chapter 4. 
uh, where the Bible is likened to a double-edged sword. It's, it's saying that Jesus has this message of judgment for all those who have refused to repent and believe in him. And, and so that's what they're saying here. It's not a literal fire. It's referring to the effects of God's judgment upon those who refuse to believe. And then you notice it also describes some other things. He describes the two witnesses shutting up the sky so that no rain falls and turning water to blood and calling down the plagues. And when he does this, he's alluding to the judgment ministries of Elijah and Moses, like we talked about last week. You remember? Um, Elijah had a, a ministry of judgment for three and a half years in which he prayed that the Lord would shut up the sky and it would not rain. And that's exactly what happened. God honored that prayer uh, because he honors the prayer of a righteous person, the Bible tells us. And then you remember that Moses had a ministry of judgment as well. Where was his ministry of judgment? What was his? That's right, yeah. When he was in Egypt and God sent him to be the one to deliver the people of Egypt and, and Pharaoh would not let God's people go. And so God gave Moses the ability to pronounce the plagues upon Egypt. And that's exactly what Moses did. It was a ministry of judgment. He was saying, God through Moses, saying, because you refuse to let God's people go, here's what's going to happen to you. Here's the judgment of God upon you. Well, John, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is making that connection and saying that the ministry of judgment is the ministry of the church now takes up. That our ministry as the people of God is like that of Moses and Elijah. That God's judgment is coming. And we don't like that, do we? We want to be the, the churches that go around saying, hey, God loves you. And he does. And, and God just wants what's best for you. And he does. But turns out that's not what you want. <laughs> we want to be happy, go lucky, and have the feelings and like, oh, yeah, everything's all nice and rainbows and sunshine all the time. But you read the Bible and that's just not the case. That's not who God's called us to be. Yes, we tell people God loves them. Yes, we tell them that there is salvation in Christ. But we're leaving out the ramifications. And that's a detriment to the world and to the church. Do we understand that today? I mean, this is why you hear some churches, they never mention sin in their church at all. How do you repent if there's no mention of sin? There's no calling someone out and saying, this is wrong. These things are wrong. These things are sinful. These things will send you to hell. Your heart is corrupted. Your heart is wicked and dead in sin, and you need a new one. And you can't do anything about that. You need the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. This is why you have no churches today. Almost no church is preaching the complete message of the gospel. We want to hang up ourselves on the good news, but here's the thing. Good news is only good if you understand the bad news. Right? It, that's right. Yeah, sinners in the hands of an angry God. People avoid that, but it's one of the greatest sermons ever written. Where Jonathan Edwards literally described humanity as God holding a spider's web and humanity was like a spider dangling above an open flame. And at any point, God could just open his fingers. And it is nothing but the pure mercy and grace of God that keeps his fingers closed. He described it as people walking over uh, rickety wooden floorboards and underneath there's a fire raging. And at any second... Those floorboards could break. 
or God could just pull the, the whole floor apart. And Jonathan Edwards said, it is nothing but the mere mercy of God that keeps you out of hell any one second. And we don't think like that anymore, do we? Sinners love their sin. They pursue their sin. They see nothing wrong with their sin. They give themselves to their sin. And they think, I'm just going to go on living forever. And some people, I've got this in a sermon coming up, so I won't preach the whole thing, but let me get going. Some people think, well, I'll just do it one day, you know? I'm just, I'm going to live how I want now. I'm going to enjoy certain things. I'm going to live up my life and do all these things. And then, but one day, one day I'll get my life together. I'll, you know, I'll do all the Christian thing then. I'll, I'll do Jesus on my deathbed. And the thing is, you don't understand that at any moment you could die. And when you die, that is it. It is nothing but the mere mercy of God that keeps sinners out of hell for any one second. In order to appreciate the good news of Jesus Christ coming into this world to save us from our sins, you have to understand the bad news. One of the biggest problems in the church today is we are not telling people the bad news. We go around sugarcoating it for people so they don't feel bad about themselves. Hey, you're not that bad. You could just clean a few things up. You'd fit right in here. When in reality, the Bible says, no, actually, you are an enemy of God. A son, a child of disobedience and darkness. You belong to the prince of the power of the air. The Bible says you are dead in your sins. You are an enemy of God. You have no goodness in you at all. You can produce no goodness in and of yourself. You are hopeless to save yourself. And because of your sin, you deserve an eternity in hell, enduring the wrath of God forever because you have sinned against the holiness of God. And since God is eternal, he is eternally holy. And to offend the holiness of God warrants an eternity in hell. That is your situation. And there's not a thing you can do about it. When you understand that, how good is it to hear, but Christ has already done it? Isn't that so much sweeter and so much better? You tell people, hey, Jesus died for you. They say, great, I've heard that before. You tell people where they actually stand before a holy God whose mind cannot be changed and his will cannot be thwarted, and then you tell them, but Christ has already done the work for you. That changes things. That's when you can really appreciate the good news. What the Bible is calling us to do here, as the two witnesses whose message, whose testimony is trustworthy and believable and reliable, he is calling us to be bold witnesses for Christ. Not to change the gospel, not not to soften its offense, but to proclaim with boldness the entire gospel message. That if you will repent and believe and trust in Christ, you will certainly be saved from your sins. You will never experience the wrath of God, and you will be safe and secure in the arms of Christ, and there's not a thing the enemy can do about that. But you also have to warn them too, church. That's the part we don't do. That's the part we have to do. You have to warn them. If you refuse this message, if you reject this message, if you continue in your sin and your disobedience and you push God out of your life and you never submit to him, there is wrath coming. And God is storing up his wrath for the day of judgment. And on that day, no one can blame him or say that he's unjust because we are supposed to warn them. This is what they deserve. It's what we deserved. And Christ is your only refuge.
That's what this is calling us to do. To be witnesses, reliable, trustworthy witnesses for Christ. And make sure that people know the entire gospel message, the bad news and the good news. All right, that's all I have for you this week. Michael Stevenson, how about hitting us with something?